First Thessalonians chapter 5 is our passage for this morning. If you ever hear someone talk about entire sanctification, you may not fully understand what they're talking about. Sanctification, of course, is uh, that development through which you are set apart or devoted to the Lord. That is what we mean by sanctification. And, and by implication, uh, you are set apart from sin and from all that is unholy, set apart toward God. But when someone uses the phrase entire sanctification, they are referring to a, a particular theological idea that's associated with perfectionism. Perfectionism is itself describing uh, this, this idea that you reach a stage in your Christian life where you are essentially sinless. You are perfected in this life. You no longer sin. You have reached a sinless perfection, as they might say, even while you're still in your mortal body. An entire sanctification is this expectation of this state of sinlessness before you enter into heaven. It originated in the Methodist movement, particularly with John Wesley, although it didn't reach its, its full development under him. He, he never really embraced the idea that anyone could ever be perfect in this life. But he used this kind of terminology that which was developed later within Methodism and eventually became what is commonly referred to as the holiness movement. Some of you may have heard of that. My own grandmother was a part of the Pentecostal holiness movement. And that whole branch of Christianity uh, really arises out of this central idea of of Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification. The idea that you are, you are able within this life to reach this place of, of sinless perfection. Well, that unfortunately isn't something that is supported in the New Testament. It really arose out of a reaction to what you might kind of refer to as a stale formality within the Anglican church. That, that is where Methodism came from in itself. It was a group of Anglican ministers who were trying to, to bring revitalization within the Anglican church and formed Methodism. But, but within uh, even that movement, it was a reaction to realities around them more than it was an exegetical or an uh, inductive study of the Scripture. Because when you look into the Scripture... What you find is a clear testimony that you'll never in this life reach that point where sin will no longer be a battle, where disappointment with the weaknesses of the flesh will ever be something you're free of. You'll never reach the place where you can ever stop praying as the Lord directed you. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You'll never reach the point where that prayer becomes unnecessary, 
where that prayer is no longer a model prayer for you. You'll never reach the point where you can say, I no longer have sin. In fact, the Apostle John says in his first letter, if you ever reach the point where you say, I have no sin, you are a liar, he says. Because the reality is, as long as we are in this unredeemed flesh, we are going to struggle with its weaknesses. We're going to struggle with its sin. It may, not know, it may not mean that you're always aware of what those sins are. As we, as we begin our Christian life, just like a, an infant, there are so many things that we're not aware of in the, in the environment in which we live or the Christian life in general. But as we progress, we grow in our awareness. We grow in our understanding of attitudes and actions even lack of actions that are themselves sinful. Sins that are overt, uh, reactions to situations where we might respond in anger or frustration or impatience, or the lack of activity where we're not as generous, we're not as evangelistic, we're not as prayerful, we're not as sacrificial as we ought to be. In all of those ways, we will continue to struggle in this life with the weaknesses of our flesh. We will battle against attitudes. We will battle against idols in our mind. We will battle against desires in our flesh that wage war against our souls and against God. But at the same time, we are given a hope, a constant hope, that the longer we go in our walk with the Lord, those attitudes, those desires, those idols even that are in our heart will progressively diminish. That we will see a a, a growth in our walk with the Lord, a growth in our devotion to Him, a growth in our separation from sin. We may not see it all happening at once. We won't see it all happening at the same pace. There will be some who appear to make more progress or greater progress over a shorter period of time. Ours will not always be to the same extent as others. There will be many factors in our life that both enhance or at sometimes obstruct or obscure our growth. But we're given the clear promise that God has called us and prepared for us good works so that we would walk in them. And this is a part of his calling. This is a part of his work. In fact, we're predestined, Romans tells us, to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. In other words, we should have an expectation and an anticipation in the life of every believer, whether it's your life or my life, that given time, you will see noticeable discernible, you might even say measurable growth in your Christian walk, your Christian life. You ought to expect that. You ought to have the confidence that God is going to do that in your life. At times, it may not be as evident in the short term. At times, it will be more evident. There will be seasons where it will happen somewhat painlessly, 
as you are soaking in the resources that the Lord has surrounded you with uh, between godly uh, uh, families and godly churches and the resources of His Word and prayer and service and all of those things, as God has flooded your life with blessings, there will be times when the growth will seem almost painless and you're just, you're just basking in the glory and soaking in all the resources. But there will be other seasons where it will happen much, much more painfully. As the Lord takes you through trials and difficulties, hardships, rejections, insults, and pain. But all of it is designed sovereignly to move us along to progress or progress us further down a pathway of ultimate sanctification, complete conformity to Christ. And the goal is a kind of sanctification that is more than superficial, that is more than skin deep, that is more than just a few limited categories of our lives, that's more than just a few ruts in which we're comfortable to track in, but it's a sanctification that affects our entire being. In that sense, Entire sanctification is a reality. In that sense, God is at work touching every part of our being and sanctifying every bit of us, whether it is our heart or our tongue or our hands or our time or our money or our marriages or whatever it might be. If you are a genuine Christian, God will not cease to work in your life until he has rooted out everything, both inside and out, that is not fully and completely dedicated to him. Another way to say that is God is fully committed to a process in your life that sanctifies you completely inside and out. Now, this is exactly what Paul tells us in our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And it's the, it's the final six verses of this letter as we wrap this up uh, this week. We'll have opportunity to go into 2 Thessalonians in a couple weeks. But, but today we wrap up our study in the final six verses of this letter, beginning in verse 23. And, and as we take a look at these verses... They may appear, you might assume, at the end of a letter, these are just a couple of dangling thoughts on the end of a long letter. They, they um, are maybe just uh, mindlessly added on. But as we look at them, we realize they contain some of the most encouraging truths, some of the most wonderful verses that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, promising God's faithfulness to never, ever stop working in your life to bring about his purposes. And this is what Paul says. This is what he prays. He says in verse 23, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Now, what we have here is largely a prayer and a few commands, a few actions, a few deeds that Paul calls for. Those actions, just like the prayer, are all concerned with essentially the same thing. They're concerned with the growth, with the sanctification, with the purity and the holiness of these believers, particularly in the area of of brotherly love. And it shouldn't surprise us, that's what has been the theme throughout much of this, these final verses of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, going all the way back to verse 12. So much of what Paul has been saying has been focused on uh, us maintaining peace among ourselves and us not returning evil for evil and us uh, making sure that we are being attentive to the needs of one another, whether we're weak or faint-hearted or whatever it might be. And now Paul arrives at the end and he, he still has that in his mind and he wants to pray for them that they would grow in this and not miss any opportunity in their life of growth. And he's confident that God is going to work in such a way as to bring this about, but he also knows that they need to pay attention to certain responsibilities in that process. And so with all that in mind, we can view, I think, what Paul says here really through two lenses. The first of all is a prayer that is confident in their sanctification. And the second of all is is certain practices that he knows will contribute to their sanctification. So let's look first in verses 23 and 24 at this prayer that is confident in their sanctification. And take... Note, I guess you might say, first of all, in verse 23, how he begins it, how he addresses God. He calls him the God of peace. It's a rather unique title. He only uses it four times, and every time he uses it, it's always in a context where he's been talking about division of some sort. He uses it in first, excuse me, in Romans 15, where he had been talking to those who are weak and those who are strong and had been talking to them about the necessity of preferring one another and, and yielding to one another and, and, and encouraging one another. And, and he tells them in Romans 14, verse 19, pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. And then he, he, he goes on to talk about the God of peace who will be at work among them. And then later in Romans 16, he warns about those who, who create obstacles and cause divisions within churches. And he tells them, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So again, this, this address of God as the God of peace comes in the context of division. Or even in Philippians 9, the other time he uses it, he, he, he is giving counsel to two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who he encourages to agree in the Lord and reminds them that whatever their anxieties and whatever their fears or whatever it might be, they can entrust those to the Lord in prayer. They don't need to be all about self-defense. And then he turns around and tells them to be at peace with one another and the God of peace will be with them. And then here, just as Paul had just told them in verses 13, 14, 15, right in there, he tells them, be at peace among yourselves, don't return evil for evil. And then once again, what does he do? He addresses God as the God of peace, the God who loves peace, the God who demonstrates such a commitment to peace. He, he's so committed to peace, he was willing to give his only begotten son to be slaughtered by his enemies so that he could make peace with them. 
And that's why he highlights this title of God, because God is the ultimate peacemaker. James, excuse me, Romans chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that when you are a peacemaker, you are known as a child of God because you have one of the most distinctive characteristics of God, who is the one who makes peace. You, you become a peacemaker, you are known as a child of God. And so as Paul begins to offer this prayer, it's clear this idea of peace and brotherly love and unity still is strong in his mind. And he establishes that the prayer he's offering, he's offering to the God of peace. And he's praying that this God of peace would sanctify them, uh, that he would work in them, particularly in areas where they might resist it. In other words, he doesn't want them to settle for a segmented sanctification. He doesn't want them to settle for a sanctification that is just just limited to superficial categories. For spiritual growth to occur, Paul understands it must penetrate even to those areas where, where you might naturally resist his work. And so he uses this kind of holistic language. May God sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. May you be sanctified not just in those areas where you're naturally gravitating, not just in those areas where you're comfortable, not just in those areas where you have had some spark in the past and you're comfortable because you had an experience at a camp or an experience in a youth group or experience in college or whatever it might be. May your growth be not only limited to those areas of comfort. May it not only be in your knowledge, may it not only be in your service or your prayer life or or whatever, but it may it even be in those relationships that you find difficult. May may the God of peace sanctify you there as well as everywhere else. May it be complete all throughout you, in your spirit, in your soul, in your body, so that you would be blameless. By the way, don't get tripped up on this language, spirit, soul, and body. People seem to run down the rabbit hole when they see this. They read it and they want to wander off into debates about the different parts of our humanity and whether there's a difference between your spirit and your soul. And then they start wondering, how can I be sanctified in my spirit and also in my soul? Well, I really don't think that is what Paul is trying to do with us. I don't think he's trying to give us, you know, a, a treatise on the human nature. He's piling up language in order to give the idea of completeness. And you'll find this sometimes in Scripture whenever Jesus says you've got to love God with all of your mind, soul, uh, uh, mind, soul, body, and strength. I, I can't remember exactly the way it says it, but he uses, he piles up terms there not to indicate that we're made up of three constituent or four constituent parts or any of that, but just to communicate the idea of completeness. You see the same thing in Hebrews whenever it talks about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword and able to penetrate down to the dividing of joint and marrow and soul and spirit and, and revealing the thoughts and intents of your heart. Well, I don't think the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us that we ought to be dissecting soul and spirit much more than we would be dissecting thoughts and intents. A, an intent is a thought. 
Maybe one of them is a bit more specific, but they're essentially synonyms of one another. And you see the same thing throughout the scripture. You see these words, soul and spirit, being used interchangeably and, and synonymously. So, so the point here is, is not that you need to uh, truncate yourself into three parts and, and focus on being sanctified in each of these three parts. The point is that you need to be sanctified inside and out. You need to be sanctified inside and out. You need to be sanctified completely. You need to be sanctified in all of your immaterial self and all of your material self. You need to be sanctified in your attitudes and in your actions. You need to be sanctified in the ways that you think and the ways that you speak and the ways that you do. This is what Paul's getting at. He's not trying to teach us human the makeup of human nature, he's making the point that God's intention for our sanctification involves every part of us. He wants to sanctify your emotions, your will, your hopes, your body, your time, your influence, everything. All of it dedicated to him. You have a calling on your life to glorify God in everything you do. And so you cannot have a Sunday sanctification that is different from your, your, your living room sanctification or your workplace sanctification. You can't have a sanctification that, that has any area of your life that is walled off to God. In the broadest sense, God wants to sanctify you inside and out. That's Paul's point. And the demonstration or the display of that will be what Paul calls a blamelessness. He prays that God would bring you to the point where your whole spirit, soul, and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not, again, he's not talking about absolute perfection here. That's not what blamelessness means. He's talking about getting to the point where there is no justified complaint raised against you. It's similar to what you see in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blame in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's talking about the kind of life that, that, that really doesn't lend itself to legitimate complaints. He's not saying you won't stumble, you won't, you won't make a... Uh, an offense from time to time with your actions or your lips or whatever it might be, he's talking about a life that doesn't lend itself to a pattern of blame. Or more, a more explicit reference, I think, is even in 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, as they sometimes will, They will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the contrast there. There's a contrast between whatever kind of current criticism that you face from time to time and the glory that people will give to God on the day of visitation. 
There might be temporary criticism. There might be temporary complaint. People will measure you by false and duplicitous standards of the world. They will complain that you don't run in the same way that they run, that you don't, that you don't revel in the same way that they revel. Or they will, they will measure you with these twisted and crooked standards and for a present time speak against you as evil because your life exposes something in theirs. It, it reveals their own ungodliness and so they will complain against you. They will pull out whatever minor uh, infraction they might find so that it just masked whatever's going on in their life. But Paul's concern is not that you avoid those temporary criticisms. His concern is that you be kept blameless, not by their definition, not by their standards, but at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the timing he's talking about, the blamelessness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's going to come a time when all things will become clear, where everyone's conscience will be exposed, and under the light of God's truth, all people will measure by the same standard. And at that point, those who even may have complaints now will give glory to God because of your works, because of your life. Paul understood that there are those who are so concerned that all men speak well of them. And he understood, Jesus says, woe to you if you're one of those, if you're given to the fear of man and the applause of people. He understood that as you pursue the truth, you will not be able to escape complaint and grumbling. But his focus isn't on that. His focus is on the testimony of conscience that responds to the penetrating light of of truth at Christ's coming. So this is his prayer. This is his prayer, that God would work in your life bringing about such a thorough sanctification that it goes beyond just the surface, that it penetrates to every part of your life, bringing about a blamelessness that's going to become evident at the return of Christ, inside and out, materially and immaterially, that you become fully devoted and pleasing to Him. Now, He offers this prayer, and then He says, with this assurance in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He understands that that what he's praying for is formidable. This kind of transformation inside and out could be potentially so overwhelming as you face those continued sins, those continued missteps, that you could be so overwhelmed that you would despair of how far you have to go. But for Paul, that's never in doubt. The calling is never in doubt because not so much your character, but because of God's character. He is steadfast. He is faithful. Meaning that when he says something, he does something. When he he announces something, he fulfills it. When he sends out his word, it doesn't return to him void. Or when he gives a call, he accomplishes it. 
God doesn't make calls in futility. God doesn't issue hollow calls. When he calls you, he's faithful and he will do it. When he says that he's going to predestine you to be conformed to the image of his son, he will do it. When he calls you into his glory, he will do it. When he tells you to be holy, he will prove himself faithful to work in your life to bring that about. Now, you may not always like the way he does it, but he will do it whether you like it or not. You may not always understand how he's working. You may not always like the pathway that he takes you down. But you can always be confident of the destination. Whether it is sickness, whether it is financial turmoil, whether it is the, the pain of broken relationships, whether it is the... the devastation of losing your job or whatever it might be. You may not like what he's doing to bring it about, but you can be confident that whatever pathway he's sending you down, the destination is sure. He is working in you to bring about sanctification. He called you to that. He's faithful to that. He will do that. You say, well, I mean, that's not what I feel. I mean, what I feel right now is that the trial I'm going through is shaking my faith to the core. So much so, I'm afraid I will lose my grip. Or you might. But if you're his, he won't lose his grip on you. That's the confidence that Paul has. That he has called you to this purpose and he will do it. Now, maybe you don't see that work going on in your life. Maybe you are around Christianity and you are around the church and you don't see any progress at all. Well, it could be that there's a season in your life where the growth is happening in a slower pace or maybe even a more painless way. It's maybe not as prominent in your eyes. Or it could be that you haven't experienced his call. You're not growing because you haven't accepted him. You haven't taken the first step. You haven't surrendered to him. Because if you are his, you will grow. You will find in your life a steady growth in your hatred for sin and a steady growth in your love for God And you'll have that because he will do it. He doesn't tolerate believers walking in their life and not progressing. That's why the writer of Hebrew tells us, look, if you're without discipline, you're not a son because God disciplines those that he loves. He disciplines us. Did you realize that the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that even Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Even Christ learned obedience. Or another way to say that is even Christ was sanctified 
by the kinds of things God took him through in suffering. Even with his perfect nature, his perfect character, there was a process that God was doing, working out so that he could be our perfect high priest, sympathizing with us in all of our sufferings. God will use difficulties, he will use loss, he will use suffering, he will use trials, he uses his word, he uses the church, he uses other Christians, he uses his spirit, he uses all kinds of means, but the, the, the confidence that we have is he's not going to stop working no matter how he's doing it. He employs all of these things, but the one thing he does not do is he does not abandon the process and settle for sinful children. He disciplines those that he loves and he sanctifies them. Now this confidence in God's working doesn't mean that you can just sit back and do nothing. It doesn't make it unnecessary for you to pursue godliness. It doesn't mean that it's unnecessary for you to apply effort. It doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to be holy for God has called you to be holy. There's a tension here as much as you find in Philippians 2 where it says that, that, that we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's a tension that is there between this responsibility you have and the confidence you have in God's working, and it's a mystery to us. We can't fully understand how it all works, but we do understand this, that God is going to work to accomplish his purposes. But if we understand all of that, we also need to understand that there are these instruments, there are these channels, there are these tools, these means that we need to take advantage of and utilize if we're going to grow. And that really takes us to our second point. It goes from the prayer that's confident in their sanctification to the practices that Paul understands will contribute to that. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but Paul closes out his letter with some specific commands, some specific things that he wants this church to do, knowing what he's praying for them, knowing what he's already asked them, asked them to do. He mentions a few things on the end that he knows is going to help in the situation. And he gives them these commands specifically because he knows how God's going to use them to continue his work of sanctification. And if you wanted to summarize it, you could just say broadly, he calls them to utilize prayer and fellowship and the word of God. That's what he's really talking about. These basically three things that he brings up here at the letter that he understands that if they do them, they'll have an impact on their life. And, and we can just look at them briefly. First of all, you'll see in verse 25 is the prayer. He, he prayed for them and now he says in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. He asked them to pray for him and his fellow workers. Paul cannot express his confidence in the sovereignty of God to work in these ways to bring about sanctification and then have no confidence in God to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of others in his own life. And so he understands the efficacy of prayer. He understands how the Lord uses it as an instrument to accomplish his purposes. He uses prayer as much as 
He uses the lips of those who proclaim the message of truth. God uses prayer as much as he uses the lips of those who proclaim the message of truth. He uses prayer as much as he uses the words of a counselor to bring comfort to those who are in distress. That's why Paul expresses over and over again a commitment to prayer. He can't always be with the people that he loves or the people who need ministry, but he prays for them. He said back in 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Or in chapter 3, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day so that we can see your face again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Paul Paul believed in prayer because he understood that it wasn't some superficial exercise. It was an instrument through which God worked. And you can find this kind of reference throughout Paul's letters. Just one example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. You hear how he sees prayer as an integral part of what he's doing? You must pray for us. Why? So that many people will give thanks for the blessings that come through us by your prayers. Paul just just saw himself as a conduit. The real work was happening in the prayer life of those who were praying for him. So he understood the way that God uses prayer as a tool to accomplish his purposes. And he's extremely committed to it. And now he wants them to understand that. He wants them to commit to it as a discipline on behalf of him and his fellow workers because Paul understood how God would use that. Not only to accomplish his purposes, but also just to bind their hearts with his, which is what prayer always does. And then not only does he urge them to prayer, but he urges them to fellowship. You'll more specifically in verse 26, that they would greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, holy kiss was something that was unique among Christian churches in the first and second century. You might read that and you might assume that that. that People all over the Roman Empire went around greeting one another with kisses, but that's not the case at all. In fact, the church abandoned this practice in the second century, late second century, because all of the Gentile world around them accused them of impurity because of it. So it wasn't common at all in in common, uh, 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 you might say, greetings or, or interactions, but It was common in one particular area of life, and that is among family members. That's where you see it. You would see kisses between parents and children or between brothers and sisters. They would greet one another with a kiss, but it was for the most part limited to that. Outside of family members, it was not something that was practiced in common society. So when the church adopted this practice, it made a very powerful, unique expression of their bonds of love. 
it communicated to the watching world in very unique ways that we consider these other people who are around us to be just like our family. These aren't just a a few people we happen to gather with on a Sunday. These people who sit next to us every week, they're just like our family. We treat them like our family. In fact, you can see Paul uses, even in verse 25 and 27, he uses over and over, he calls them brothers. That also is not common. This is unique to the Christian society. Joseph Hellerman in his book, uh, titled When the Church Was a Family, he says, in ancient Mediterranean society, the most intense emotional bond did not occur between spouses in a marriage, but between siblings who shared the same father. Women did not view their husband as the major source of companionship and emotional support. Instead, her emotional needs were met in her relationship with her brothers and sisters, end quote. We have very different ideas of marriage today. They're not wrong ideas. But you need to understand the way that it worked in Roman society in these days. Brothers and sisters were close. So when you came into the church, the natural relationship with your, ha- with your family would have been the model that the church picked up and used to express its bonds of affection with one another. And not only that, but then you had the teaching of Christ who said that if you wanted to be His disciple, you actually had to love Him more than your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, even your sons and daughters. You had to love Him more than all of those relationships which the Christians understood to transfer to one another as the body of Christ. And so whenever people became Christians in the early days, they adopted the language of brothers and sisters. And they adopted the practice of a holy kiss. And Paul wanted to encourage this kind of affection, these kinds of bonds. That's why he encourages them with this kind of interaction. He wanted these people who seemed to be struggling at some level with interpersonal relationships, he wanted to encourage them who seemed to be struggling with with, uh, peace among themselves and trust among themselves, he wanted to encourage them with this kind of interaction. People have, have read this, you know, it's not uncommon in the New Testament and people have tried to, tried to speculate what would this look like i mean we don't practice kissing like this even among family members in our society so maybe we ought to replace it with a handshake but i'm not even sure that quite gets at it i'm not sure what gets at it all i know is that what paul is asking for is for the church to embrace a new kind of attitude towards these different people who are associated with them in their local fellowship that goes beyond just some sort of social intercourse. It goes into a level of bond and affection and commitment that mirrors the kind of commitment of your most intimate relationships. And you should have some sort of expression for that. 
probably that goes beyond just a mere handshake. It would go certainly beyond even just a, a, a ceremonial kiss. It would go into your entire life. You should be as connected and bonded to these brothers. You should be as committed, as dedicated to your sisters as you would to any natural family. This is Paul's desire. He wanted to see them continue in this way, expressing love in these visible, practical ways because he understood how the Lord would use that to sanctify them, to work in them in every area of their life. And then finally here, he adds a third commandment, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, this is probably perhaps the most unique of all Paul's commands. He, in other letters, asked for prayer. In other letters, he asked uh, for people to give one another holy kisses. But this command, to have this letter read, is not typical for Paul at the end of his letters. And it's probably a reflection of a couple of different dynamics. First... And foremost is the fact that Paul was aware that this is no ordinary letter. He had a sense that what he was writing was not only authoritative because of his role as an apostle, he had a sense that what he was writing was scripture. He knew it. He understood it. There are those who would suggest that it took the church decades, maybe centuries, before they would ever feel comfortable identifying these letters as Scripture. But that's not true at all. In fact, if you look into the New Testament and to the earliest sources that we have in, the Christian, in Christian history, we read in the New Testament writers referring to one another's works as Scripture. Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. Paul refers to Luke's writing as Scripture. Jude, the writer of Hebrews, referred to the writings of the apostles as being equal with Scripture. So Paul wants them to read this letter because not only as an apostle, but as a Christian and someone who has the Holy Spirit, as he is even writing the letter, he recognizes it's no ordinary piece of literature. He understood this was Scripture. And in the early church, the Christians had adopted the same practice that characterized the Jewish synagogues when they gathered for worship as a part of their public gathering, a part of their public worship, they would read from the scrolls of the Old Testament. This is what the early church did. And what Paul is essentially saying to them is, read my letter right alongside of the Old Testament Scripture. When you gather together, read it. It needs to have the same prominence as the rest of the Word of God. In other words, he understood this letter to be divinely inspired. 
He's like any other Christian. He reads the scripture and his spirit interacts with the scripture even as God is, is revealing it through him. And so Paul reflects this. I, he uses strong language. I put you under oath before the Lord to do this, he says. Very strong statement on the importance of reading this publicly. And his instruction also reflects the fact that this is one of his earliest, if not his earliest letter. There were no other letters that had been written. There was no established tradition at this point. It wasn't like there were a bunch of other New Testament letters that had been written and the church had gotten into this pattern of publicly reading it. So in order to make sure there was no confusion at all, because this was the very first or maybe might have been written just within a few months of the book of Galatians, because this was one of his earliest letters, he gives them this instruction so that they are crystal clear how they should handle this letter. In time, as more and more letters were written and word would begin to circulate among churches in different regions about these letters, requests would come in from other churches, surrounding churches, to have copies that would be made, and the copies would be sent out and circulated. And within just a few years, this multiplied copies of different books of the New Testament throughout the entire church, so that by the time you get to the early 60s, Peter can make a general reference to the letters of Paul and expect it to have been recognized and known by many churches because they all would have had copies of his letters at that point. Every indication from the very earliest sources indicates that the church was very quick to embrace the letters of the New Testament as Scripture so that certainly by the time you hit the mid-60s, there was an active Bible that was being used and circulated throughout the early church. Not necessarily bound together in one document. They would have been contained in, in separate scrolls, but recognized as authoritative Scripture. They accepted it as the scripture, as the Bible, and in many, many cases, they were willing to even put their own lives in danger. There were many of them who lost their life defending these letters. Very different from the narrative that you get from popular society that would tell us that the Bible didn't come into existence for a couple hundred years. A very naturalistic, humanistic approach that doesn't recognize the active work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers nor through His providential hand over these letters. But here you see, in very real terms, Paul's understanding and his instruction and the practice of the early church in the prominence it gave to these letters. Instruction to read the letter out loud to the congregation along with the other Old Testament scriptures. And Paul says it because he understood that this too would have contributed to their sanctification because that's what the Word of God does. 
This couldn't be isolated to just a few leaders who might be reading the scripture so that they can prepare studies. It, might, it can't be isolated to just a few uh, intellectual people, scholarly people, people who are, who are studious. It can't be limited to them. It must be something every Christian is exposed to, every Christian hears from. And so he puts them under solemn oath that this letter be read because he understood that God would use even it for sanctification. And then Paul closes, as he often does, with this closing valediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He has uh, this all over his letters, similar, maybe not identical, but all of them, all of them, including something about grace. This was the idea under which Paul closed all of his letters because it was the idea that permeated all of his writings. The grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was that same grace that Paul knew was necessary in order to sanctify them, in order for sanctification to permeate every part of them, in order for both their inside and outside, their soul, spirit, and body, for God to work completely and entirely, they would need God's sustaining grace. And so that the Spirit would be at work in their lives, even in those areas they might naturally resist, those relationships they might naturally resist. Paul's prayer is a prayer of grace. It's a prayer of God's kindness, calling them and completing in them the image of His Son. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this word. It is your word. Even the salutations and valedictions, the greetings and the closings, every jot and every tittle was inspired by you. It'll stand for all eternity. And it gives us the sweet comfort of your gracious work in our life. Lord, you are faithful. And you've called us to sanctification and you will do it. We yield ourselves then to you, to your process, whatever you may need to do in our lives. Would you conform us to the image of your son? Help us, Lord, to have have hearts that are malleable to the working of your spirit, that are tender soil to the implanting of your word that are ready to be channeled in whatever way necessary so that whatever path is necessary, as we walk down it, you will present us blameless at the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.